All too often, it starts with not enough coffee. On a day when there is not enough coffee, there wasn't enough sleep. On a day when there wasn't enough sleep, I don't have enough patience. On a day when I don't have enough patience, I don't have enough kind words for my family. On a day when I don't have enough kind words for my family, I don't have enough grace to overcome the shame I feel for how I treated them. On a day I don't have enough grace, I don't have enough time to do all the self-righteous fix-it things I've convinced myself will help, like clean everything, read stories with them, get all my own work done so it's not hanging over me, creating more stress. On a day with not enough time, I stay up late. So the next day, there's not enough coffee. There is a time loop I can enter where scarcity spins me like a top. Do you ever feel that sense of not enough? Not enough time. Not enough patience. There's not enough margin. Not enough money. My house isn't pretty enough. I'm not getting enough sleep. There's not enough coffee. Today we're exploring what Jesus does at the wedding at Cana. And as we do, let's bring along whatever feels not enough. Jesus is about to challenge that and also to invite us into a more life-giving way. And we need it because scarcity feels so real. Why is that? After all, our story with God starts with God's abundant delight in us, in all of creation. The garden in Genesis is portrayed as a place where God puts women and men together to live in joy, peace, meaningful work, and rest. There is abundant life, abundant food, abundant opportunities to be in the loving presence of God the Creator. It's all abundantly good. Scholar Lisa Sharon Harper talks about it and reminds us the word tov, Hebrew for good, describes each of these creations. The seventh time it is used with an additional word, tov me'od, which we translate very good. A better translation is forceful, vehement, or overflowing good. The relationships between all of creation were forcefully good, violently good. You might be familiar with the Jesus Bible storybook, the children's Bible. It describes sin coming into the world as the terrible lie. And the author represents that creatively by having the serpent say to the people, Poor you. God must not love you. It's such an effective way of phrasing it. Now, there isn't enough love, fruit, power. So how will I find it? How will I go about getting it? And if you have it, surely that means there's less for me. Scarcity is a symptom of sin in the world. It can be an interesting and insightful filter for us, too, to look at the broader story of Scripture through this lens of scarcity versus abundance. Consider the formation of God's own people. God had hopes and dreams for Israel. Israel is made to bring light to the world by reflecting God together. And God offers them some experiences to know that there is abundance. When there's a scarcity of food, God provides abundant manna and quail. When there was a scarcity of water, God provided abundant water from a rock. 
God can be trusted to take care of them. And from this purpose, this purpose of representing the abundant goodness of God, God gives them the law, a culture of holiness that sets them apart from the nations around them. Israel will abolish debts while others exploit. They will welcome the stranger while others abuse. This is what it should look like and feel like to be a covenant people. So in both cases, creation and being a covenant people, abundant goodness is foundational. And it draws out the ugly truth of scarcity's ability to be such a barrier to trusting God's love. Scarcity makes it extremely difficult to trust that God really can and will care for us. Scarcity makes abundance seem foolish. And when scarcity wins out, we take that gift, that gift of the law that would draw us to God, we make it a little g God of its own. We pursue it instead of the God who gave it to us and start mastering a checklist of do-goodery and don't-you-dares, all while simultaneously offering worship to idols and foreign gods just in case Yahweh actually can't or won't take care of us. And I say we because the story of Scripture is our story. It's not just how people handled things back then. It's not that they struggled to understand God's invitation to trust God's abundant love. It's not that only they made up a system that worked where God's approval was pretty scarce but could be ticked up just a bit if you do things just right. It's not that they conflated the pursuit of the true God with the pursuit of other securities just in case. We do this. We try so hard to secure ourselves to get enough, whether it's via money or youth, status symbol products, picture-perfect families, the illusion of control or significance. We, too, fill our days with never-ending checklists. And by doing that, we betray our functional theology. You know what I mean by that? The real theology that we actually live out in our lives, no matter what we might know in our heads. Our functional theology is that there's not enough, so I have to work so hard to get what I need. And though we may exhaust ourselves to death, we dare not stop. There isn't enough, so we can't afford to stop. Hear now the testimony of John on the first sign of Jesus' life-giving work in the world. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots, set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. We left off last week at the end of John 1 with Jesus gathering a group of disciples, and Jesus promises that they will see even greater things than the bits they experienced starting off. It's important to know that this miracle that John represents to us isn't great because of the sheer power of it. We're not meant to ooh and ah that Jesus can do this amazing thing. Rather, the greater things Jesus promises to do and does are signs. They point to Jesus as the one doing the work of God. They are witnesses. They testify or tell the story of Jesus's true identity and purpose. As one scholar puts it, miracles are parables in John. So the significance of signs in John is never in Jesus's ability. The significance is how it shows more of Jesus's identity. You can see the power or you can have insight into who is doing the powerful thing. To clue us into the point of the sign, Mary M.I. Thompson calls what we just read the abundant provision of choice wine. She doesn't call it turning water into wine. The abundant provision of choice wine. She wants us to be better attuned to the meaning, the generosity of the wine. It's 120 to 150 gallons of wine. The superiority of the wine. Hear that steward say again, you've kept the good wine until now. Normally, it's good to pour, but now he's saying it was good to great with the wine. As Jesus is launching his public ministry, he is inaugurating a new reality. He's marking this point where things are different. Earlier, In our gathering, we heard some passages that anticipate this reality from Isaiah and Jeremiah. And as the first sign, the point is, the kingdom's here. And it's Jesus who is making it real. Everything God has been doing was building to this great new move forward, marked by abundance, generous provision, more than what's expected. The scholar and ethicist Glenn Stassen, in his book, Kingdom Ethics, reminds us that the reign of God is performative. It's God's performance in which we actively participate. And the reign of God has a set of markers, seven in particular, that he points out, one of which is joy. As Jesus launches his public ministry, he is inaugurating a new reality. Jesus is marking this point where things are different. The kingdom is here. Earlier, we read some passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah that anticipate this new reality. Right now at this wedding, this first sign is that moment. It's here. And Jesus is making it real. Everything God has been doing was building to this great new move forward, marked by abundance and generous provision, more than what's expected. And as God does even more, we get to do less. That is, as the grace of God is so abundant, 
we are invited to stop striving. As the provision of God is so lavish, we are invited to stop worrying. As the goodness of God is displayed like choice wine, we are invited to trust, which is precisely what those who saw all this did. Verse 10 says his disciples believed in him. They're the only ones who actually know that Jesus did this. The steward doesn't know where the wine came from. The bridegroom just hears his words. But the disciples see it, and they believed. That word belief, anytime we see it in scripture, we should really be thinking that that means trust, in action. It's not a word that actually connotes agreeing with something in your mind or thinking it was good. Belief and faith are about trust that goes forward in action in scripture. Now, if that all feels a bit too good to be true, a bit uncomfortable, maybe it's because that old reality, the reality of scarcity and striving, it's still speaking to us. Abundance feels vulnerable and scarcity feels real because in a way it is, or at least was, It's not that scarcity wasn't true, an illusion. It's very real. But there is another reality. And we can exchange one for the other by trusting Jesus to be enough and to make our not enough somehow enough. We have been saying that as a church, we hope to equip people to joyfully and sustainably live the one another's from the Bible, neighbor well, and do justice. Joy and sustainability, they come out of passages just like this, where we're invited to see that Jesus's dominion is one where he generously provides superior wine. We could just list those three actions, live the one another's, neighbor well, do justice, but without joy, without sustainability, we might end up striving to perform from a scarcity reality instead of exchanging it for a kingdom reality of abundance. To put all this another way, We are invited by God to come to the wedding celebration and drink great wine, to live as if the abundance is trustworthy because Jesus is trustworthy. The invitation is not a reward we earn after we have worked hard enough to overcome scarcity. It's an act of defiance against being defined by scarcity in the first place. We're revolting against that entire paradigm and instead are actively choosing to chase joy to sprint toward delight. As guests at the wedding at Cana, we reconnect with a God of abundance. Friends, God's invitation to celebrate, enjoy, delight, it's so much more than some admonishment to stop a self-righteous striving. It is a pathway back to the garden, to the place where we knew we were created lovingly, made by hand, to spend our days in joy and beauty making. We were created to revel in joy, to celebrate with Jesus with all the buoyant delight of kids reaching for bubbles.